It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Looney. I am very happy to be uh, taking the Daily Thunder uh, time and steering it back towards what was a deep passion for me uh, before the quarantine, which was on spiritual lessons from World War II. During the quarantine, I, we had a series, Nathan and I had a series called, uh, what was it? Uh, I don't know, something about the quarantine. I can't remember what it was. It shows you how deeply uh, in love with that series I was. I was just excited to move past it to something defined. And uh, I did one session during that time on the spiritual lessons for World War II. It was a Sunday morning daily thunder out of uh, our studio back at the house. And... I got so invigorated just by getting back to the topic. And so I've been chomping at the bit to get to this. And so this is going to be a shorter uh, one. I'm going to try and keep this as streamlined as possible. But uh, this is like sucking on candy for, for me to be back in the chapel, to be holding a microphone, to have my clicker in my hand, to see your faces. I mean, this is just like seventh heaven. So this one's called The Door of the Desert Foxes. That'll make sense uh, as we progress, but uh, this is part 21. Can you imagine? We've had 21 parts. Uh, Episode 349, isn't that uh, fun? Uh, 350 would have been even more cool, but uh, we'll take 349. Uh, So one of the characters I want to introduce you to as we progress today is Erwin Rommel, and any of you that are uh, students of World War II maybe have heard the name. He's a German... Uh, general and very famous to the Germans. Uh, the Allied side, on the you know for here we are Americans. We tend to not do a lot of studying of the great war heroes in Germany. That doesn't mean a lot to us. And yet to the Germans, uh, he is still to this day a, a hero. He is uh, Hitler in the time of World War II was decided that he was going to take two men and he was going to make them heroes. He was going to make one a hero in the uh, snow and another one a hero in the sun. So they're called the heroes of the snow and sun. And one, whose name is Edward Diedel, was sent to Finland to the snow, and then Erwin Rommel was sent to the Middle East to the sun. And so he is known as the hero in the sun. Uh, there's also uh, another name for him, and uh, we'll get to that in a second. In 1941, but now a new figure sprang upon the world stage, says Winston Churchill a German warrior who will hold his place in their military annals, Erwin Rommel. Now, I've read and studied a lot on Winston Churchill, and here's one thing I can say. He does not give a lot of compliments to German military expertise and German military uh, personnel, and yet he has a high regard for this man. It's an interesting statement I'm making there. So Erwin Rommel, he fought in the First World War in the Argonne in Romania and in Italy, being twice wounded and awarded the highest classes of the Iron Cross and of the Order Porte de Merit. Rommel's division, nicknamed the Phantoms, formed the spearhead of the German breakthrough, rolling up the... So this is in World War II now. Uh, Remember when, uh, if if you've been following this series, when the Germans did their surprise attack on France, they went through the Netherlands and Belgium and then boom, into France and took it. And this is what led to Dunkirk, where all the British troops and the French troops went to Dunkirk and were ferried across uh, the English Channel. But so this uh, this was Rommel's uh, work. He was leading it. 
And it says, uh, rolling up the French left wing and capturing numerous French and British forces around St. Valery. His division entered Cherbourg uh, just after our final evacuation. That's the Dunkirk evacuation. Where Rommel took the surrender of the port and 30,000 French prisoners. This guy was tough stuff. He was really good. So he's also known as the Desert Fox. And... Winston Churchill would basically, he doesn't show any regard for Hitler. He doesn't have any respect for Hitler. He has respect for Rommel. And he would have considered uh, Erwin Rommel the Allies' greatest threat. So Rommel proved, this is Winston Churchill again, Rommel proved himself a master in handling mobile formations, especially in regrouping rapidly after an operation and following up success. He was a splendid military gambler, dominating the problems of supply and scornful of opposition. At first, the German high command, having let him loose, were astonished by his successes and were inclined to hold him back. His ardor and daring inflicted grievous disasters upon us, but he deserves the salute which I gave him. And not without some reproaches from the public in the House of Commons in January 1942, when I said of him, we have a very daring and skillful opponent against us, and may I say across the havoc of war, a great general." That's quite a thing to say, and he took a lot of flack for making that statement about Rommel. He also deserves our respect because although a loyal German soldier, he came to hate Hitler and all his works and took part in the conspiracy of 1944 to rescue Germany by displacing the maniac and tyrant. For this, he paid the forfeit of his life. Now, unfortunately, with that quote, I'm getting ahead of myself because what we're going to see is we're going to see a turn we're going to see a man who was very skilled at what he did, and yet he was using it for the wrong purposes, for self-gain, and he had to overlook a lot of crimes. He saw what Hitler was doing, but he had to tell himself he was merely a military man. He wasn't a politician. These are issues for politicians. He's not going to moralize these things. He's just going to do what he's supposed to do. He's a general, and if he's told to fight, he'll fight. If he's told to win, he'll win. If he's told to take that city, he'll take that city. And he's going to overlook, and he's going to overlook, and he's going to overlook what Hitler is doing. And yet that's going to catch up with Rommel at a certain point. And so I'm going to take this parallel of Rommel, who's the desert fox, and I'm going to link it in with a story in the Bible, which is a very fascinating one to me. Uh, so in Erwin Rommel, uh, the opinion of the Allies would be, Rommel, yuck! Patui. I'm not sure. I looked up the word patui and I couldn't find a definition for it, but that's always the word I've used for when you spit on something. I'm sure it might be spelled different or something, but patui, okay? That's how the allies would deem Erwin Rommel. So Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, is who I'm going to link Rommel with. And that's a, a strange character. And I'm sort of emphasizing the fact that he's the fourth son of Jacob. He's not the head guy. He's not uh, Jacob. And he's not Reuben, the firstborn. He's the fourth son. I mean, why would the Bible focus on this guy? What you're going to see in the text of Genesis is it's interesting if you look at it through the lens of what the Bible's about. The Bible is about Jesus. And so it shouldn't be a shock to us that in the book of Genesis, the Spirit of God is going to carry along Moses to emphasize something. Judah. He's going to emphasize the fourth son of Jacob. You hardly know a thing about some of the other sons. But you do know about this guy, and he gets into a lot of trouble. He's, he's sort of an Erwin Rommel, very talented guy, obviously, because even though he's the fourth son, he sort of is the leader. And Reuben is not as much of a leader as Judah is, and which is a fascinating statement. You have yourself a very cunning fox 
here in Judah. So I'm going to give him the nickname the Desert Fox, even though it doesn't totally fit. It sort of does, okay? He's like a rommel. <clears throat> Genesis 37, 24 through 28. And so this is in the story of Joseph, which I know many of you are familiar with. It was my dad's favorite story uh, growing up. And so he would share this story with us all the time. He'd get really excited about it. He loved the story of Joseph. Then they, speaking of the, uh, the brothers, uh, all the brothers but Benjamin, took Joseph and cast him into a pit, and they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah, now most of us miss this, so Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. He's the fourth born and yet his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now many of us know that story. We know that, you know, when you, when you read the story, uh, as a family, we were listening, to, we were go, you know, going through the Bible on audio, and we were listening to the story, uh, what was it, last week, and it's deeply disturbing how Joseph tells his dreams to his brothers. I don't know if you feel that discomfort when you hear the story, but it's just like, buddy, just keep your mouth shut, and everything could go a lot smoother. Don't, don't wear that multicolored coat. Oh, Joseph, what are we doing here? I mean, don't, no, don't share your second dream. This is not going to go over well. I mean, the guy seems to be setting himself up for disaster. Does he not understand how brotherly pride works? And yet, uh, it all seems to be part of this divine providential plan. But Judah is a key character in it. So if we were to say, remember how I said the opinion of the allies towards Rommel? It's like, yuck, patui. Well, this would be Judah... If you're talking about the opinion of Joseph, Judah, yuck, patui. Okay, so just think about this. Joseph is going to have a particular dislike for this character. Okay, this character is the one that came up with the idea of selling him. Now, yes, that is better than killing him, but Reuben was going to set him free. Reuben was going to get him out of that pit. Reuben just was, you know, I don't know what he was doing, where he was at the time, but Judah took the lead and profited from this whole thing. Yuck, patui. So the breaking of Rommel. Rommel is working for a bad guy, just as Judah is. And here, here's the parallel I'm ultimately going to bring about. So have we. In other words, when you look at the story of a Rommel, when you look at the story of a Judah, when you look at the story of a Judas, you oftentimes have a tendency to look at these characters as being like, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. Instead of recognizing that they are being controlled by something, it's the same thing that we've been controlled by and the same thing that the gospel sets us free from. In other words, all of us can relate to this story at a certain level. And what is needed is a breaking. One of the things, if you hear me teach people about how to share the gospel, I would say the number one thing that a soul needs to even hear the gospel is they need to know their need of a Savior. If they don't know their sin then they don't need a savior. What they need to know is their need. And so to get someone to know their need is not the easiest thing for us to pull off. It's something the Holy Spirit must do. 
And what's amazing is what you're going to see in the story of Rommel is whether you call it the Holy Spirit or not, and we don't have a clue what Rommel's spiritual life is. He died in 1944 before the war was over. We didn't get to do any interviews with him. What we know is he was haunted. We know that he was struggling, and that comes from some of the communications you get after the war when they're talking, even though we didn't get to ask him, we get some of the quotations in the private meetings of what he was dealing with because he's looking back at Hitler, who he is a good military, I mean, Rommel is obedient to the death to his military leaders. And the fact that his military leader is Hitler, he's still going to serve him. But his military leader is doing some really weird things. And so Rommel is doing his best to overlook that. Have you ever felt that in your own soul? Where it's just like the Holy Spirit's convicting you on one end and you keep justifying? It's okay. It's okay. Hey, I can do this. I mean, look at all these other people that do that. It's the same thing Rommel was dealing with. Same thing Judah was dealing with. The breaking of Rommel, the weight of guilt, the death camps. What he heard was happening to Jewish people in Poland started to break him down. You see, it was hidden even from him. He's the military. He's not supposed to hear these things, but he starts to find things out, and he cannot even swallow it, that he's fighting for a system that is doing this type of thing. Siding with Hitler, fighting for Hitler, feeling the immense and crushing weight of seeing Germany crumbling under this evil. He's actually beginning to see, come the, the days of the 1944, he's actually beginning to see that Germany's going to lose this war. He's been siding with the devil, basically, and he, he has blood on his hands. Could you imagine that feeling? That, that can't be a good feeling. And so he, in secret, agrees to join in on the conspiracy to displace and to replace Hitler. Now, he never agrees to killing Hitler, even though that's what the conspirators were going to do. To replace wasn't actually the plan. It was to kill. Get this guy out of here. And so he then becomes culpable when it doesn't work. I mean, Hitler escaped who knows how many assassination attempts. I mean, how, how did that work? Some of the stories are just extraordinary. And in that final one, uh, Rommel is implicated even though he had nothing to do with the, uh, the attempted assassination, and he ends up losing his life. So as the, the statement would be, he forfeited his life uh, to try and remove Hitler. So Judah, we could call it the breaking of Judah, the weight of guilt. Now, do you guys remember the story when the brothers go down because there's a famine in, uh, in the land, and the only place where they can find grain is in, is in Egypt? So they go down to Egypt. Joseph, who is second in command and basically as if he's Pharaoh, has total control over all the grain resources, and he recognizes his brothers. And many of us have wondered, why, is, why does Joseph bring them through such rigmarole? I mean, it's quite the story. It's, it's, it's humorous. It's sad. And you sort of wonder, it's like, Joseph, why don't you say, hey, I'm Joseph. All of this was worked for you know, the, the blessing of you know, your people, my people. Hey, isn't this great? Instead... He's reserved. He's held back. And he even seems to be mean towards them. But what if I was going to put a description to what is taking place as he's testing them? Why? Because he doesn't know that they've changed. If all you've known is the Rommel who is out to defeat you, you're not going to trust him with a conspiracy attempt to remove Hitler. You have to test him. You have to see where he's at. You have to know what makes him tick. And if he actually passes the test, then... You'll reveal your plans. And so you see Joseph going through a similar process. 
And what's happening, and what's interesting is you feel it. You even hear it in the quotations of Joseph's brothers. This is happening to us. I mean, Joseph's taking him uh, through the ringer. I mean, they're going through it. I mean, even on the way back, they find their money in their bags. They're like, oh, no, great. And uh, Simeon's back locked up in prison because of this, and they know why. It's because of their sin. It's because of what they did to Joseph. They recognize it. They recognize that they can't hide it. They can't bury it anymore. They can't turn a blind eye to what they did. They knew it was wrong when they did it, but they've tried to justify it for all these years. And now it is coming to roost. So the weight of guilt, siding with selfishness, fighting for flesh, feeling the immense and crushing weight of seeing the extreme penalty for his sin. He's feeling it. And you're going to see that even in how they describe it. So in Genesis 43, it says, Then Judah said to, his, to, father, to, sorry, said to Israel his father. So this is after they've eaten all the grain. Poor Simeon has been back in the prison in Egypt this entire time. Because if they're going to come back, they have to bring Benjamin back with them. That's the only way that Joseph will listen. Benjamin is symbolic to Joseph. Because how they would treat Benjamin is how they would treat him. Because he's of that same lineage, that same, he's a, he's a, he's a child of, of Rachel. He's favored in Jacob's house. He knows it. And so as a result, how they treated him, or are they going to treat Benjamin the same? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, remember, it's Judah speaking here. He's speaking on behalf of the boys. Send the lad with me, and we will rise and go that we may live and not die. In other words, send us back to Egypt so we can get grain. Both we and you and our, also our little ones. I, I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. What you're going to see is the, begin, the emergence of a Christophany, or what some would call an anticipatory parallel. Judah. You know what comes out of the name Judah? Well, there's a lot that comes out of that, but just the word Jews are going to come out of that because the name of the people group that David is king over and then he'll become king over all Israel is Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. And then after Solomon's reign, you're going to see the kingdom split into two. You're going to have 10 tribes of Israel to the north and two. It's going to be uh, Judah and Benjamin that will be in the southern tribes. And so then you have... Uh, the lineage of the Jews, so the kings of the Jews, and, D and Jesus is known as the king of the Jews. And so this lineage of Judah is very significant in the, in the story of the Christ. And what you see is Judah rising up. He is the very one who betrays, and he's also going to be the very one who's going to say, take me instead. It's a very fascinating statement. You're going to begin to see a picture of the Judean king. So Joseph... And he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food. So now they've come back, and Joseph is giving them food, after raking them over the coals again. Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. So jo Joseph's steward is going to do this, and he's, Joseph's testing these guys. Very specifically, he's going to stick it in Benjamin's sack. And Jacob, the father, has said, oh, if Benjamin doesn't return, I'll die. Okay, so this is a, this is a big deal to the brothers. And remember, Judah has said, hey, if they take him, I'll stand in his place. So we got the ultimate test coming here. 
So the sons of Jacob uh, say when the, the steward comes to him and says, hey, you guys took uh, the, the cup of the king. They're like, we didn't take the cup of the king. And they say, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. They know they didn't take this cup. There's no way one of the sons of Jacob would steal a cup from Pharaoh's uh, second in command. You've got to be kidding. So Joseph's steward said, and he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. See, he knows it's in Benjamin's sack. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. Uh-oh. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. This is about a ba as bad of a moment as you could get. And what is needed is a savior. What is needed is a man who will stand up on behalf of this one who is culpable and now guilty, even though we all know it was a setup. Judah. Listen to how it says it in Genesis 44. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. Now why wouldn't it just say, and so Jacob's sons all came to Joseph's house? There's something about Judah that the book of Genesis is lifting up for us to see. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Then Joseph says, The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So why is Joseph doing this? He's testing them. Are they going to forsake Benjamin too? He's seen what makes them tick. And so he set the scene up to see if they will now stand, if they're different or if they're the same. And the very one who sold him for 20 pieces of silver, Judah, is going to step forward. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak. Your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. So you and me, the breaking of you and me. You see, what we had is the breaking of Rommel, the clear sense that he was on the wrong side of things and that he needed to change. And what we saw is the breaking of Judah. We see him actually brought a clear realization of his sin is actually going to cause a repentance and cause him to actively do the opposite of what he did before. And the same is true with us. The weight of guilt, siding with selfishness, fighting for flesh, feeling the immense and crushing weight and seeing the extreme penalty for our sin. So for many of us in here, that's already happened at a certain degree to lead us to the cross in the first place. And yet this is something that is an ongoing doorway into the redemptive grace of Jesus Christ. The anticipatory parallel. This is truly a remarkable picture. I'm going to go to, and some of you may have heard me say this in the past. I remember uh, reading Flavius Josephus uh, and his account of this story in the, uh, when they were selling Joseph and the brothers. And listen to this. But Judas, you know how the Jews refer to uh, Judah? They call him Judas. Isn't that interesting? So listen to this. But Judas, being one of Jacob's sons also, being some Arabians, and there's 12 sons, and one of them is Judas. And one of them is going to sell 
Joseph. Okay, that's amazing. The posterity of Ishmael, carrying spices and Syrians, wears out of the land of Gilead to the Egyptians after Reuben was gone. It's Reuben. Advised his brethren to draw Joseph out of the pit and sell him to the Arabians, for if he should die among strangers a great way off, they should be freed from this barbarous action. This, therefore, was resolved on, so they drew Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the merchants for 20 pounds. It's interesting because in many translations, it's 20 pieces of silver. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is sold for 30 pieces of silver, which would have been perfect if it was 30, 30, but instead it's 20, 30. Maybe that just shows you that Jesus is worth more, huh? Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the, the reason for it is. But isn't that just fascinating? This is a man who is not, doesn't necessarily believe in Christ. Uh, Flavius Josephus is just a Jewish historian. He, he lived in the time of Christ. Judas then one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. When we oftentimes look at the, the story of the disciples or the apostles, uh, we tend to, if I were to say, who do you identify with? Most of us deliberately choose not to identify with Judas. Just like when we look at the stories of Acts, we deliberately choose not to identify with Ananias and Sapphira. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I want to be like Paul, or I want to be like Peter. That's because we see the full redemption of their lives. But we don't recognize all of us have the same kernel, the Rommel kernel, the Judah kernel, the Judas kernel. We are all betrayers. We are all responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And so all of us must recognize that, that severe need that we all have to be rescued by the shed blood of Jesus. The repentance of the fox. So as Winston Churchill says of Erwin Rommel, he also deserves our respect because although a loyal German soldier, he came to hate Hitler and all his works and took part in the conspiracy of 1944 to rescue Germany by displacing the maniac and tyrant. For this, is, for this he paid the forfeit of his life. He laid down his life so that he could walk the right way. This is actually the pattern of the gospel right here. It's, that's why I call it uh, the, door of, uh, the door of the desert. What I call it? The door of the, the foxes? Uh, I forgot how, what I named my message here. The repentance of Judah. I shall bear the blame, he says. Please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. Take me instead. In other words, he is going to repent and walk a different way. He is going to practically, tactically change direction. The lion of the tribe. Isn't that an interesting uh, way of saying it? The lion of the tribe. Of course, you guys know it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but the lion of the tribe. We have the ultimate picture of Judah. The personification, capital J, Judah. We have the Jew, Jesus, that is going to come. And it's interesting because if you study the history of Judah... It's pretty rocky. You have a lot of bad stuff in there. And Jesus is going to become Judah, if you want to say it that way. He's going to become sin. He is going to bear that curse, that ignominy. And he's going to do it right. He's going to save us in that place. So what does the king of Jews do? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Take me instead. 
Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Daniel 9, 26, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. It's an interesting statement. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ also loved us, and as, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 1 John 2.2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The repentance of you and me. So we had the repentance of Rommel. He is literally going to risk his life and lose his life to stand up against Hitler. He's been a loyal soldier his entire days, but he recognizes, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot stand with evil. I must stand against evil. And then we're going to see Judah who was profiteering off the sale of one of his brothers and now is going to give up his life to set free one of his brothers. We are going to see the repentance of Judah. And this is the same pattern for us. We must enter through the door of the desert foxes. Grief over our sin. Repentance of our sin. A deliberate change of direction. A hazarding of our very life to prove seriousness. How serious are you? Could you imagine if Jesus is in the Joseph position and he's testing us? He knows how we've lived. That's why we must prove our repentance with our deeds. You see, Jude is going to prove his repentance with his deeds. He'd repented of it. You could just imagine his discussions with Jehovah God as he's walking back and forth from, from Egypt. And on his way, after the, after the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, and he's like, oh God, this is all because of me. He'd repented, but he has to prove it with his deeds. Take me instead. Lord, here is my life. Take it. You purchased it with your blood. I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living for you. Whatever you desire of me, take it. You see, this is the essence of the door into Christianity. It's interesting because after all these years, as allies, we have a respect for Erwin Rommel. He fought for the bad guy. He was literally our greatest threat, and yet all of you in here are like, I like that guy. Not because of his deeds when he was fighting for Hitler, but because of his final deed. He chose to stand against him. Judah was a rotten character. If you study him in Scripture, you're not going to want to be Judah. And yet you actually esteem him in this story. You're like, you know what? I like Judah. Not because of his entire life lived, but because he made a decision to... Listen to the conviction and to repent and to prove that repentance with deeds. There is something about that that the scriptures is going to hallmark that we all esteem. Christ is the fulfillment of that. He has lived the life that we couldn't live. And when we recognize our Judah-ness, our Rommel-ness, that we have served the bad guy and we humble ourselves, we have life in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would bake this truth so deep inside of us. And if there is anything in us that needs to be rectified and changed, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not wait another day. But we would come unto that cross. We would come unto you. We would repent and believe and be saved from it, Lord. Lord, we love you and we thank you for bringing us
back together. Even if it be in sort of an awkward, strange way, in a quarantine-esque season. Lord, we cherish it. You are good, faithful, and true, and we love you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.